Good morning, everyone. It is good to be back with the saints at Desert Springs Presbyterian Church. I enjoy coming home. It's always good to come home. Our text this morning is uh, similar to the one that Mike read from Luke 4. It's Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. So please turn there in your Bibles, if you would. This is God's Word for us this morning, so, so let's pay heed to it. Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there. Remember, he is at Capernaum. He went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, this is your word. You're the one who caused it to be written. You spoke through the mouths of prophets and of apostles that all scripture is given by the outbreathing of God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We ask now that we might read, we might mark, learn, and inwardly digest all that it contains. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, in the, uh, in the previous episodes of Mark's Gospel, just before this one, we see this uh, recurring theme of the amazement, of the astonishment of the disciples and the crowds at the power that Jesus displayed over nature, over demons, over illness, and even over death. For example, at the very end of Mark 4, if you recall, Jesus calmed a, a terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. And seeing this, all the disciples were afraid, and they said in awe, and they said in wonder, Who then is this, that even wind and sea obey him? Later on in chapter 5, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. He heals a woman with a discharge of blood, and he raises a young girl from the dead. And the reaction of the people to each of those miracles was fear. And most notably, it was amazement, amazement at what they had witnessed. It was quite amazing. Now in our text for today, it's Jesus' turn to be amazed. He is astonished at the unbelief of the people in his hometown. You know, in these past episodes, Jesus himself, he he drew attention to faith as the instrument of salvation. He told the woman with the discharge of blood that her faith had saved her. He exhorted Jairus, the father of the young girl who died, not to be afraid, but to believe. You know, go back and read those accounts in chapter 5. 
And you'll see that those people, they were desperate. And they turned to Jesus. Because he was the only one who could save them. And they knew that. Now here in Nazareth, it's so interesting. It's just the opposite. Here we encounter people who had no sense of a need for Jesus. There's no amazement here of who uh, Jesus is or what he has done. And consequently, they miss salvation because they have no faith. You know, first, just a little context, a little background on our text here. You know, up until now in Mark's gospel, Jesus and uh, his disciples had pretty much been in the region of Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this, of course, was a very important area where most of Jesus' public ministry took place. It was the hometown of many of his disciples. Peter and John, James and Andrew lived in Capernaum. They had a thriving fishing business there. They had houses in which Jesus stayed during his ministry in Capernaum and around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now in this text this morning, we, we move back inland about 25 miles or so, a little southwest to Nazareth, the hometown. This was the place where Jesus grew up the place where perhaps he'd spent 25 or more years of his life. You know, Nazareth was a small village of no consequence. There's no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned there at all. You know, and apart from the dozen or so references to it in the New Testament, the first known mention of the town is by an obscure writer some 200 years after Christ's birth. Archaeological digs suggest that uh, Naz Nazareth was a hamlet situated on a rocky hillside with a population of no more than 500 people. In other words, Nazareth was a nowhere town. You remember the derogatory remark about Jesus elsewhere or about uh, Jesus elsewhere in the, in the Gospels. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth. Nazareth was out in the boonies. It was a hick town. We would uh, say today that it was in the flyover part of Israel. <laughs> Had no significance at all. You know, is it any wonder then that the Lord's having come from such an insignificant place was an obstacle to people taking him seriously? You know, according to his custom, the Lord chose the synagogue service on the Sabbath as his opportunity to address the Jewish community here in Nazareth. And we're told here in verse 1 that once again, the authority of his teaching and the wonderful message that he brought, it held the people spellbound. You know, we have a more complete account of this history in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel that Mike just read. And we're told there of the tremendous impression that his teaching made upon the people. They had never heard anything quite like this. You know, what's more, the report of the miracles had uh, reached Nazareth, and, and some of them perhaps had already witnessed some of the miracles, especially if the few healings he performed there mentioned in verse 5 had occurred before he taught in the synagogue. But here is the interesting thing. 
Here is the amazing thing, which I think grabs our attention in this text. The authority of his teaching, his reputation for miracle working, produced a negative rather than a positive reaction in these people. Now, as we've noted briefly, part of the reason was that they knew this man. They knew his family. Jesus had grown up among them. He was just a carpenter, for goodness sake. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a carpenter. You know, the word used here actually is broader in scope than our word carpenter. A tecton could build you anything from a chicken coop to a house. He could work in stone as well as wood. He could repair implements as well as build structures. He was a skilled worker. But still, you don't expect the meaning of life to be found in a tradesman. So everybody in Nazareth knew Jesus. He was Joseph's boy. He was Mary's son. He was the brother of this list of names here, James and Joseph and Judas, or Jude, and Simon. You know, not to mention sisters as well, which, you know, just as a quick aside, I think that pretty much dispels the Roman Catholic belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin. (laughs) You know, we know nothing of any of the siblings mentioned here except James. James later was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the man whose book bears his name in the New Testament. And Jude, the author of the little New Testament book that bears his name. You know, as we want to say, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, there was a similar saying about prophets in Jesus' time. And and in verse 4, Jesus repeated that saying to them. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You know, it's hard for people to imagine, I think, having to revere someone so familiar to them and so unremarkable in his family situation because Jesus is so much like themselves. You know, that's how the Lord's siblings must have felt in those days. You know, can't, I can just hear them say, you know, look, he's our brother. That's the boy we grew up with. We played with. He, the fellow with the hammer in his hand. He has come from God. You cannot be serious. Can't happen. Let me just say as a, as a quick aside here, I think that this sort of reaction from Jesus' family is a striking demonstration of the reality of the Incarnation. That the Son of God came into the world as a genuine human baby. He grew up as a genuine human boy and young man. He grew up to be an ordinary human being who looked and in many ways lived like any other human being in this small town. He grew up in an inconsequential town, in an inconsequential family. So I think we can understand 
that this was an entirely understandable reaction on the part of his family, however absurd it was in this case. You know, you would have thought that the miracles, that the teachings of this good man would have cleared their heads, but they didn't. They didn't get the memo. And of course, this attitude of Jesus' family made it much easier for the town people to take a similar dismissive view of him. You know, we read back in Mark 3, verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying he's out of his mind. In other words, if Jesus' own family thought he should be locked up in the basement, then it was certainly much easier for the townspeople to, to dismiss him as well. Well, let's move on. You know, Mark said he could do no mighty work there. In verse 6, I think, is also striking. That little phrase emphasized the consequence of the people's unbelief. Basically, it tied Jesus' hands. Now, it's not true that, that Jesus never healed unless the patient had faith. There are, in fact, I think a number of instances reported in the Gospels in which Jesus healed without the presence of faith on anyone's part. But here in Nazareth, he met with outright rejection. He met with hostility. And few miracles could be expected in an environment like that. See, here's the thing. Jesus' miracles were not entertainment. Now, in the main, they, didn't, they weren't even for the benefit of those who profited from them, the sick and the demon-possessed. Jesus' miracles were his messianic credentials. And to perform them in front of people already hardened in their unbelief served no purpose and indeed only increased the guilt stiffened the penalty that Nazareth would one day pay for the rejection of her greatest son. Now, this statement in verse 6, with which this short paragraph concludes, obviously contains the burden of the lesson that uh, Mark wrote this history to teach. It says there that Jesus marveled. He was amazed. He was astonished at their unbelief. You know, I don't know about you, but I didn't expect that when I studied this passage. You know, I didn't expect Jesus to be amazed at anything, really. But I certainly, especially, didn't expect him to be amazed, to be nonplussed, to be startled by his hometown's unbelief. You know, a man who knew the human heart, if anyone knew it, a man who had faced already in his ministry the blackness and the stubbornness of the human heart was nevertheless dumbstruck by what he encountered in his hometown. But you see, that's what makes the fact all the more interesting and his amazement all the more impressive. How so? Well, I think it forces us to admit that there is something amazing about unbelief and about people's refusal to embrace 
the good news of the Son of God come in the flesh. The unwillingness of men to embrace the gospel really, really is something amazing. So amazing that it even amazes the Lord Jesus. And so you see, a passage like this, a, con a concluding statement like this, is intended by God to be an explanation of the world that you and I live in. An explanation of the life of mankind. So I want to just sort of camp out here for a little while and take a look at all this. You know, Jesus taught these people pretty much as he had taught others. It says here that they were struck by his teaching as other synagogues full of Jews had been. He taught with an authority that they had never experienced before. He wasn't like any, any scribe or, or rabbi that they'd ever heard. He, he opened the scriptures in ways that made their, their Bible come alive. His words had the, had the ring of eternal truth. You know, true, he, he actually condemned some of their pet doctrines, but there was absolutely no denying that Jesus was a teacher to be reckoned with. And these people recognized that. And then there were his miracles. You know, not many done there in Nazareth, to be sure. But enough to confirm the accounts that they had heard of the remarkable things that he had done elsewhere. Not even these hard-hearted Nazarenes were of a mind to deny that Jesus had done wonders. And there's no indication here that they thought that the few healings performed in Nazareth were a fraud. No one ever thought that. They appeared to be genuine. It appeared to be supernatural. So there was every reason for the people in this village to welcome him warmly, enthusiastically, triumphantly, given the circumstances, that what we, that's what we would expect. But fall at his feet, they did not. Receive him gladly, they did not. Ask him to explain the secret of his great power, they did not. They didn't even keep an open mind to examine, to, to study, to pray that they might know what to think about Jesus. No, it says here very quickly they took offense at him. Or more literally, they were scandalized by him. His riveting and exciting teaching his astonishing miracles and his good works and character and behavior notwithstanding. Everything he said and did only served to anger them and even to wish him dead. That's what Mike read for us this morning over in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, that it actually came to that in Nazareth. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and they drove him out of the town. They, they brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. These people came very near to killing the Savior of the world. And his escape from them was a miracle in itself. That's incredible. Where did all this hatred where did all this animosity come from? 
Now, why were these people so easily and so very quickly disgusted with and revolted by Jesus? You know, not just to disagree with him, but actually to hate him and want to kill him. Why? Why did they take such a deep and abiding offense at him? Why did they do that? Now, why, why didn't they just ignore him? Instead, they gnashed their teeth at him. They thought very hard the thoughts of this extraordinarily good man. Why? Well, no doubt, humanly speaking, we could say some things he said to them offended their pride. Uh, we read about that over in Luke 4. No doubt it became clear to them that to follow him, they'd have to make some adjustments to their lifestyle, abandon some of their cherished beliefs and practices. No doubt they couldn't wrap their minds around this idea of a Messiah coming from their village, particularly a backwater town like Nazareth, and particularly a local boy they had watched grow up before them, and it was only a carpenter. No doubt such things played a part in their behavior toward Jesus. Yet... I would just say, in and of themselves, none of them is particularly amazing. None would have caused the Son of God to be amazed. I suggest that there's something else going on here. There's more here to what caused this behavior than that sort of stuff. There's something more here that caused the Lord's wonder, His amazement and astonishment at their unbelief. And I want to suggest this to you this morning. You know, as striking as this instance of unbelief in Jesus may be, and at first glance it is shocking to us, but as striking as it is, it is in fact quite typical of the human race. You know, you read through the Gospels, and you'll see quite clearly that the furious unbelief of people is a primary theme. You can't read the Gospels, you can't make any sense out of them without having to come to terms with the fact that everywhere Jesus went doing good, he offended people. The reality is that in the Gospels, we not only see men coming to Christ, we also see man's visceral rejection and hatred of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to his own, John says, but his own received him not. And dear ones, that terrible fact cries out for an explanation. Why didn't they receive him? Now, how could the Jews supposedly so eagerly so breathlessly waiting for the appearance of the Messiah, reject him so decisively when he came among them. Even though he was demonstrating his divine power every day of the week in the most breathtaking way, how could they ignore the miracles, the teaching, the goodness, the blessing of his life? How could they miss the Son of God when he was standing there right in front of their face? The Lord's own astonishment at this unbelief, I think, is the index of just how inexplicable, how shocking 
their unbelief really was. You know, it is astonishing, isn't it, when you think about it? In defiance of overwhelming evidence, they shut their eyes and their hearts to the Son of God. And even Jesus in his his manhood is taken aback by that, by the refusal of so many people, people who should have known better to recognize the Son of God giving commands to demons, and having them obey him without question or quibble, healing every manner of sickness immediately and perfectly by the mere utterance of a word, stilling a storm by telling it to shut up, raising the dead to life again. Here's the question. You tell me, If you think you would brush all of that off and hate such a man who had come among you with such a power to do you good, would you blow all of that off? Well, here's the answer. Yes. You and I would have done just as they did. Because what they did is what everyone in their natural state does. What they were doing in Nazareth was nothing other than human beings being human beings. See, that's what makes this short little text so revealing. It's what makes it so important. And no doubt that's why Mark placed it right here in his story. Dear ones, the man of Nazareth is every man. The woman of Nazareth is every woman. The child of Nazareth is every child. It is the intractability of human unbelief. The natural offense the human heart takes at evidence of the presence of God. The deep-seated opposition to the truth of God. Even more, a natural animosity toward God that is here on display in Nazareth. It's on display so often in the Gospels. There's something mysterious here. There's something profoundly irrational. This unbelief is a violation of reason, of clear thinking, of good sense. You know, what can explain the reception that Jesus received except that there is some deep-seated bent in man? that makes him an enemy of the truth and an enemy of God. See, that's what the Bible, in fact, says about all human beings. We are, by nature, enemies of God. We are rebels who will not give in to him even to save our own souls. What the the Bible teaches in many places is precisely what we have illustrated in this text. You know, these people in Nazareth, we would today, if we know them, characterize as sincere. They were good people by the ordinary standards of of human judgment, the way small-town people often are. We might say that they're the salt of the earth uh, sort of folks. 
good old Midwestern values, they really did think that they were doing God a favor by rejecting, by condemning, and driving out of town the Son of God. You see, this is how deep the rebellion goes. It completely absorbs the human heart. So that even in a man or woman's most sincere and moral emotions, even in his or her most religious convictions, the true and living God remains the enemy. An anti-God principle lies deep in our DNA. You know, we don't come into this world tabula rosa with a clean slate. We come into this world hot-wired with this anti-God principle. We inherit it from Adam. You know, look, people have good points. The people in Nazareth had good points. They didn't reject Jesus because they were unusually bad people. They They didn't reject him because they were different. They rejected him because they were the same as other human beings because they had within them the same aversion to God that everyone has by nature since the fall of man into sin in the garden. Humbling themselves before God is something they will not do. Submitting to His will, they will not do. It's their very nature to be rebels against God. You know, when I put this together, I pray that this is not too harsh. But this, this is the brute fact about the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one willingly believes it. No one will embrace it. That's why so many in the world who hear the message don't believe it. There's this predisposition in the human heart not to believe not to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and not to submit to His will. I think we're we're sometimes inclined to think that if only people could be made to see this or that, if only if if they could be made to carefully consider the evidence, they would believe in Jesus as we do. But the fact is that all the evidence in the world is not enough to convince a person to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It has nothing to do with evidence. You know, Jesus was all the evidence anyone should, have, should need. And most people not only didn't believe in him, they came to hate him. You know, Blaise Pascal, that giant of philosophy, of mathematics, of literature, theology, he once explained why he became a Christian. What prevailed to make him follow Jesus Christ. And he said, the gospel to me is simply irresistible. Being the man I am, being full of lust and pride and envy and malice and hatred and falsehood and all accumulated and exasperated misery, to be the gospel of the grace of God and the redemption of Christ and the regeneration and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that gospel is to me simply irresistible. And I cannot understand why it is not equally irresistible to every mortal mortal man born of woman. You see, Pascal was amazed at human unbelief. 
But here's the thing. That was only after he became a Christian himself. Pascal didn't always think it incomprehensible that everyone didn't become a Christian. There was a time in his life when he would have felt no amazement at all at the unbelief of others. There was a time that he found unbelief utterly natural, completely reasonable. You know, C.S. Lewis argues from his own experience that there is a great peace and pleasure in unbelief. To be able to keep God at bay at the far, at the far edges of one's mind, or to ignore him altogether, Lewis says, is very comforting to the human soul. Out of sight, out of mind. It's what the soul desires to, to be rid of God. You see, what the people of Nazareth, what even the members of the Lord's own family, and what the Lord's amazement at their unbelief teach all of us this morning, is that apart from the grace and the power and the working of God and His Holy Spirit, we too, you and I, would have remained forever offended by the Lord Jesus Christ. We might have called ourselves Christians, but we really would have been offended by the Lord Jesus Christ as He has revealed to us in the Bible. His goodness, His power, His love would have angered and disgusted us, not drawn us to Him. This one whom we now count on for everything, whose presence is the light of our lives, who has invested our hearts with the hope of everlasting life, we would have thought a bad man, a foolish man, perhaps even a man who was out of his mind and needed to be pushed off a cliff. That's a horrifying thought. But that's where we would have been without God's grace, His power, entering our lives and changing our hearts to receive Jesus by faith. You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, you should never imagine that it's a small thing to become one. You know, Jesus says in another place in the Bible, no one can, no one is able to come to me unless the Father draws him. So deeply fixed is your animosity toward God that nothing short of a work of divine power in your heart can overcome it and make you a follower of Jesus. It takes the power of God at work in you to overcome your, your natural rebellion against God. God has to remake you from the inside out if you're to believe in Jesus and follow him. And you won't ask him to do it unless he's already at work in you. So is he at work in you? Do you have any sense, any urging in your life that is leading you to explore who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do? If that describes where you are this morning, I exhort you to follow up on that. Don't put it off until tomorrow because that is, in fact, God at work in you. Talk to Steve Cavallaro, the pastor here. Talk to one of the elders of this church. Don't wait. And for those of us who are Christians, I think you know, we're to remember every single day we wake up and put our feet on the floor 
that it was God's grace alone, God's power alone, that made us see in Jesus what others will not see, and to embrace as love and light and hope and life and joy what others continue to find just so much offense and absurdity. Left to ourselves, we would have hated Jesus Christ all our lives, and we would never have believed in him or followed him. Dear ones, there is no sure evidence that we have encountered the living God and that he has done something for us and in us than that we believe in Jesus Christ, his son, and we trust in him for salvation. You see, people will never say and do that without God drawing near to them and working within them. It's amazing. It amazes me. The world's lack of faith. It's intractable unbelief. Makes no sense. But there is something more amazing than that. The faith in Christ that fills your heart and mind. Dear ones, it's a gift. And our response to that can only be, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Please pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, for opening our hearts to receive him as Lord and Savior. This is something you have done. It's a gift to us. And we can never praise you and thank you enough because we could not do that on our own. And Father, may we see this morning with fresh eyes and like Jesus, truly be astonished at the unbelief we see around us every day. May we be exhorted by your Spirit to go out and over and over and over again preach the gospel to a dying and unbelieving world. And may you bring many to yourself as a result. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.